Hello and welcome to today's special episode of Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. I am also now the co-host of Monga Bay's Newscast, a weekly podcast bringing you the news on conservation from all around the world. And today's episode of Planet Critical is actually my inaugural episode with Monga Bay, in which I interviewed Brandon Wu, Director of Policy and Campaigns at ActionAid USA, about the negotiations on loss and damages that took place ahead of COP28. These negotiations were meant to ensure a just and fair system of financial redistribution to help developing nations respond to the havoc that climate change is wreaking. However, these negotiations utterly failed to meet their mandate, with the USA bullying developing nations into accepting a deal that in no way falls under climate reparations. Loss and Damages was originally perceived as a fund paid into by developed nations because they are responsible for the historic emissions in the world that are causing global warming, which are impacting developing nations first. However, this was not the deal that was brought to the table. Instead, in the final hour, developing nations had to concede to a deal that doesn't even mandate the richest countries in the world paying into this fund, who instead would rather private institutions and the markets to step in, once again offsetting responsibility for this crisis. Now I'm playing this episode to you because it would fit brilliantly as a Planet Critical episode, but also because I want you all to go and subscribe to Monga Bay's newscast. Monga Bay is really an astonishing organization, an independent non-profit center for environmental journalism. Monga Bay offers truly diligent and astute reporting from around the world using an environmental lens to uncover politics, geopolitics, corruption, and platform the stories of the voiceless. I've been freelancing for Mongo Bay for a couple of years now and have always been really impressed by their rigorous editorial standards, the quality of their journalism, and also the warmth of their staff. Mike is my co-host on the newscast and I've collaborated with him a couple of times over the years and always really enjoyed it. At the end of every episode, Mike and I have a back and forth discussing the information that our guest brought to light. These conversations are really fun to record and they offer a different angle to the episode and the information given. So I really hope that you'll all go away and subscribe to Mongo Bay's newscast. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or any of those other apps. It's also available on the mongabay.com website and I would highly suggest that you sign up to one of their newsletters. As I said, the news that they are producing is just truly phenomenal and they're also one of the only newsrooms that I know of that puts equal attention into all continents and all countries where they're based, which really changes your big picture understanding of the world. So I'll put links in the show notes, go and sign up and without further ado, here is my very first episode with Mike of the Mongabay newscast. This is unprecedented in this process. Every single other fund that's been established, you know, by or, or process that's been established by the UN climate framework, you know, has said that developed countries should should take the lead in providing finance. That language has been weakened over the years, but this is the first time that it's fully disappeared. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. position is this is a this is a international cooperation fund, right? Anybody can pay in and the money can, can go to, to the folks who need it the most, but it's not a fund that's about reparations, right? It's not a fund that's about compensation. Welcome to the Monga Bay Newscast. I'm your co-host, Mike DiGirolamo. And I'm your co-host, Rachel Donald. 
bring you weekly conversations with experts, activists, scientists, and journalists working on the front lines of conservation. Mongabay is an award-winning nonprofit news source that shines a light on some of the most pressing issues facing our planet while delivering journalism that holds power to account. This podcast is recorded and edited on Gadigal land. Now, hold on a minute. Did I just say co-host? I most certainly did. I am excited to announce, as a regular contributor to Mongabay and now co-host, Rachel Donald is officially joining the Mongabay newscast to provide you even more coverage of the environmental issues you've been tuning in to hear. As an experienced podcaster and environmental journalist herself, running her own platform, Planet Critical, Rachel brings a lot to the table, and I cannot wait for you to hear her work. I will still remain on our podcast staff, contributing interviews of my own to the podcast and editing the breakdowns you read on our website. But as an added bonus towards the end of each podcast episode, Rachel and I discuss our thoughts and key takeaways from each interview she does. So I highly encourage you to stick around and listen to those. With that said, on Rachel's inaugural interview, she speaks with Action Aid Director of Policy and Campaigns, Brandon Wu who visited Abu Dhabi just this past month to attend the fifth and final set of negotiations from the UN Transitional Committee to design the latest text on the much-anticipated loss and damage fund before it's reviewed at the Climate COP, COP28, in December. This fund was created initially with the intention of providing financing to nations coping with the greatest impacts of climate change. However, Wu says this meeting was the furthest thing imaginable from a success. And you'll find out why in Rachel's interview with him. So, once again, join me in welcoming Rachel Donald to the Mongabay newscast, and don't forget to stick around for the post-show discussion. Brandon, welcome to Mongabay's newscast. Thank you very much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. So you're the director of policy and campaigns at ActionAid, an organization that has been raising the alarm around the loss and damages campaign at COP. Um, and we'll get into the sort of latest problems around it. But can you go back and explain what loss and damages is and why it is critical um, when we're mm -hmm. talking about financing the, the climate crisis and also climate justice? Absolutely. So loss and damage is really what happens after a climate impact has taken place. So, you know, of course you can imagine the, the most obvious thing would be a, a severe weather event, say a, a hurricane or, or a flood or something like that. Um, how do we support communities to recover and rebuild from a disaster like that? Um, and as you say, you know, my organization has been working on this for, for over a decade. Um, for quite some time, loss and damage was not part of the international climate negotiations. Um, we had basically two different pillars of those, of those negotiations. One was on mitigation or reducing greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change. And then one on adaptation, which is really about building resilience to future climate impacts. But back when the negotiations started in the 90s, people still thought of climate change as something that was happening in the future not something that was already happening. Now we're very clearly in an area where things are already happening and we have been for quite some time. And so we've added this third pillar of negotiations uh, about, you know, again, about loss and damage. What do we do after an impact has happened? How do we support communities 
um, to rebuild and recover from impacts that, um, you know, adaptation measures haven't been enough um, to, uh, to build their resilience and be able to cope on their own. So an example of this might be uh, the floods that hit Pakistan last summer, where 33 mm-hmm. million people were displaced. Exactly. And so we can have, you know, economic losses. Uh, I think the floods in Pakistan were estimated at $60 billion in, in, in damages to, to rebuild, right? But then we also have non-economic losses, like people who are displaced. Um, you know, you mentioned Pakistan, literally, I mean, millions of people were internally displaced in Pakistan. You can imagine something like sea level rise for small island states. Um, that is another, you know, classic loss and damage scenario where not only do you have economic damages, but you're, you, we could literally see entire countries wiped out. We don't have a framework in international law for dealing with that. And that's the kind of thing that, that the loss and damage negotiations are trying to get at. Now, which countries at the moment are on the front lines of the damages caused by the climate crisis? Well, arguably all of them, right? right? I mean, we're seeing massive climate impacts all over the world um, in both, you know, wealthy developed countries like the United States. Um, you know, I mean, just think of the wildfires in Canada um, uh, this past summer or that are, you know, still ongoing to some extent, um, you know, all the way to uh, floods and droughts throughout the many parts of the developing world. Um, and then, of course, the small island states um, that that are beginning to be impacted by sea level rise. We're seeing these things everywhere. Um, but the whole point of the loss and damage negotiations is that some of these countries have the resources and the capacity uh, to to deal with the impacts to a certain extent. Um, obviously, I think, you know, even in the United States, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we need to do a better job of allocating those resources to support communities that are impacted by disasters. But there are some countries that don't have those resources at all. Um, and that includes many of the most vulnerable countries in the world, um, small island states, a lot of sub-Saharan African states, least developed countries, um, you know, in a country like Pakistan, which, which is, I think, technically a middle-income country, also has extremely high levels of vulnerability without the resources to properly cope. Uh, and so the loss and damage negotiations are all about supporting those poorer countries who lack the resources and, by the way, who don't really have the historical responsibility for causing the climate crisis, right? Their emissions have generally been much lower than those of the wealthier countries. And so it's just, it's a matter of, of, of climate justice. Um, one way we talk about loss and damage, in fact, is as a form of reparations, right? It's, it's a way of wealth that wealthier countries actually actually owe these poorer countries um, because they are coping with a problem that they had very little role in causing. Okay, so what we should see then with this fund is the global north countries who are historically mostly responsible for the vast uh, for the majority of emissions um, produced since the industrial revolution without perhaps including China. Um, paying into a fund, even if we include China, that's even if we true. include China, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and paying into a fund so that developing countries can adapt to the damages that are being caused by the climate crisis, for which they are typically not responsible for. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so uh, there's a, a some language precision here. That's the the loss and damage fund isn't paying for countries to adapt. Right, mm-hmm. we actually already have a channel 
for that kind of finance, which is called the Green Climate Fund. That is a fund that exists to support developing countries to reduce their own emissions and to build resilience to future impacts. The Loss and Damage Fund is our new fund, which is really just for supporting countries to recover from climate impacts that have already happened, right? So that sometimes there's a, there's a fuzzy line between adaptation and, and loss and damage. Um, but the simplest way to think about it is really, this is a fund that's just to support recovery and rebuilding um, post-disaster or post-impact. Now, on paper, it sounds great. What is the reality of the fund? Is it being the, paid into? The reality is, well, it's brand new, right? So we we won a victory uh, at last year's climate negotiations just to get this thing established. Uh, but, you know, after the, the decision was made at the negotiations, the fund didn't just materialize out of thin air, ready to accept money and, and, and ready to disperse it. So what we won was actually a process to design the specifics of the fund. Uh, and mm-hmm. so we have what's called a transitional committee that's been meeting throughout this year, 2023. Uh, they met five times this year, essentially to negotiate the details of how the fund will work. So who will it take money from? Who will it give money to? What kinds of activities will it support? You know, how will it get the money out the door? How will it ensure that, um, you know, human rights and, and basic environmental and social safeguards uh, are, are there? All of those questions were for this committee of, of negotiators to decide. Um, and so we don't actually have a fund yet that has money in it that, is, that it's able to disperse to developing countries yet. Uh, what's supposed to happen is that this year at the climate negotiations in Dubai in December, they will take what the transitional committee has designed uh, and approve it. And at that point, we'll have an operational fund, and we may even begin to see the first pledges to that fund at this year's climate negotiations. Okay, so let's um, let's bring it back a little bit. So at COP27, okay. there was a loss in damages. Um, negotiators won a right to design uh, a fund. And mm-hmm. behind between COPs, committees get together to essentially orchestrate and design and um, roll out the sort of pledges and uh, based on the pledges and promises that are made. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now that was lauded as a historic deal at COP27, having the right to design this process. Uh, but what it looks like recently, based on the transitional committee, is that everything that kind of uh, represents a true loss and damage fund has been watered down, including who pays into it, why they pay into it, and where that money goes. So... Uh, yeah, can you explain sort of how the negotiations have been and where we've ended up? Yeah, well, I should start with COP27. It really was a real victory. Um, and, you know, as as we've discussed, what we won was not a fully, you know, a fully operational fund by any means. We, we just literally won a process. But that was significant. Um, and it was significant because the developed countries, especially the United States, have been vehemently opposed to the establishment of this fund uh, ever since we started talking about it 10 plus years ago. Why? Um, Because they don't want to be on the hook for paying massive amounts of money to the developing world, right? Um, And and again, this is particularly the the United States. The United States only agreed to have the loss and damage, uh, you know, a mention of loss and damage in the Paris Agreement, which of course was the landmark climate agreement negotiated in 2015, 
the very last thing that was holding up agreement um, uh, in Paris was loss of damage. And it was because the United States was terrified that including loss and damage might mean that the U.S. could be held, say, legally liable for damages happening in other countries. And so the United States got uh, you know, a, a sentence inserted into the Paris decision text saying um, loss and damage, and it, it, I'm paraphrasing here, but it says loss and damage um, does not imply any form of liability or compensation. Now, those are the two key words. Um, uh, and, and so Bizarre. liability, of course, has a legal definition, right? That So it means that the U.S. can't be held, you know, you can't sue the United States uh, if you are a poor country because of climate impacts that the U.S. has caused. Compensation is, is I think, a, a more broadly defined term in some ways the more problematic inclusion in the Paris Agreement. I mean, it sort of implies that there's not any link between what the United States has, has done uh, or, you know, wealthy countries like the United States, what they've done. And the money that they should be giving to the global south at, at all, um, and that's you know that's been the the attitude again, especially of the United States throughout the loss and damage negotiations, and the fact that we were able to convince them that we really need a fund. Developing countries really need this. It's you know a matter of lives and livelihoods. Um, you know that required an enormous amount of political pressure. Uh, again, especially on the United States. And actually, many of us didn't think going into last year's negotiations that, that we were going to, to win a loss and damage fund. Um, and it was a pretty extraordinary you know, combination of factors that finally got the United States uh, to move. They were the ones at the last minute who were, who were still blocking. Um, and, and the fact that we got them to move was really remarkable. Now, they agreed very reluctantly, right? And I think that's what we're seeing play out this year in the transitional committee process because the U.S. is spending all of their time in that process, as you said, basically watering down the fund. Um, and, you know, I can go now into sort of detail about what that means. Um, so one thing, and, and I would say the thing that was the most um, controversial at the end of the transitional committee process, which, by the way, they were only supposed to meet three times. They decided they needed four meetings. At the end of their fourth meeting, the co-chairs of the committee said, we failed. Uh, we came oh, into wow. this meeting with 13 different kind of key points of divergence between the, the developed and the developing countries, and we've resolved zero of them. Wow. Uh, Look, sorry, Brennan, quickly. Is there a representative from every nation on that committee? No. Does that so work? The, the, the transitional committee has 24 members, 14 from developing countries and 10 from developed countries. And they're selected on a regional basis. So they, they have, say, you know, the developing countries have a couple members from um, Asia, a couple from Africa, a couple from small island states, that sort of thing, right? Right. Um, and... You know, although there's more developing than developed country members on the committee, the committee operated by the consensus. And so basically everybody had to agree for anything to, um, uh, to move forward. Um, so any, literally any one member could, could block consensus. Um, and, you know, so by the end of the fourth meeting, they didn't have consensus over essentially any of the difficult issues. So at that point, that was just a few weeks ago um, in, in Egypt. It was, well, it was about a month ago. 
And then they decided to schedule one last kind of last ditch, you know, fifth meeting to try to resolve the differences because they, you know, their mandate was to deliver the design of a fund to this year's negotiations, the mm. COP28 in Dubai. Um, and there was enough, you know, political pressure on them that, um, that they, you know, they scheduled a fifth meeting to try to, uh, to finally resolve their differences. That fifth meeting took place in Abu Dhabi um, uh, about a week and a half ago, um, and they did resolve their differences. Unfortunately, the way it happened was mostly a lot of arm twisting and bullying from, from developed countries, and especially the United States. Um, and, you know, just, just as one kind of key example, um, coming back to what I was, uh, what I was originally saying, um, the United States was especially, you know, bullying, uh, around this issue of where the money is going to come from, from the fund. Right. So recall the U S has always had this position that this is not about compensation. It's not about liability. The way that that came through in these negotiations was normally when we have a, a UN climate fund, um, you know, there's some language that says developed countries should take the lead in providing money uh, because they're the ones that are responsible for the problem. They're the ones that, that have the money, right? Um, and, and it's always been widely accepted that developed countries should be the ones um, giving poorer countries money, right? That's the whole premise of, of the UN climate negotiations in a lot of ways. The language for the loss and damage funds the, in the financial input section, so where the money's coming from, all it says is the fund will accept contributions from a variety of sources. That, right. I mean, that, that's it. There, the, there's like a, <laughs> there's like some more words about, you know, the variety of sources could be public, could be private, could be philanthropy, you know. Um, but there's literally no mention at all of, you know, developed countries mm. or wealthy countries or, or mm. anything like that. And that's because the United States was essentially vetoing any attempts to to include that kind of language. Um, this is unprecedented in this process. Every single other fund that's been established, you know, by or, or process that's been established by the UN climate framework, you know, has said that developed countries should should take the lead in providing finance. That language has been weakened over the years, but this is the first time that it's fully disappeared. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. position is this is a this is a international cooperation fund, right? Anybody can pay in, and the money can can go to to the folks who need it the most. But it's not a fund that's about reparations, right? It's not a fund that's about compensation. Um, which, it's, it's, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it seems no. to run contrary, as you say, to you know the vast majority of, of the history of COP, the reason for COP, Absolutely. and also even the Green Climate Fund, which was set up so that developed countries could pay in a hundred billion dollars a year, if exactly. I remember correctly, yeah. uh, in order to help developing nations adapt. So, how could it be possible then that such language could be put forward and accepted um, as acceptable? <laughs> I mean, frankly, because the United States is is a world power, um, you know, still, and uses that power to get what it wants, right? I mean, that's that that's the honest answer: is that these are geopolitical processes, um, and the United States uses the leverage that it has um, to influence the negotiations the way the way that it sees fit. Um, you know, they are making a legal argument; they're saying that. The original UN Climate Convention from 1992, 
where we first established um, the principle of what's called common but differentiated responsibilities, basically meaning the the wealthy countries that have that have created the crisis are the ones that should that should take the most action. In that convention, the words loss and damage do not appear. Mitigation and adaptation, they're both in there, but not loss and damage. And so the U.S. is making a legal argument that since loss and damage isn't in the original U.N. climate convention, the principles of equity and common but differentiated responsibility that are explicated in, in the convention, therefore, don't apply to loss and damage, right? It's a pretty flimsy legal argument, but that's all the U.S. needs, right? They, 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 that's the argument that they've been going with, even if no one else buys it. They're like, this is this is our reading of the convention. This is our legal understanding, and and, and therefore we're not obligated in any way uh, to provide funds for loss and damage. And when the U.S. kind of digs in their heels, there's very little, frankly, that um, that 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 the rest of the world can do, particularly if it's just you know the the developing countries, mm-hmm. right? There's very little that developing countries can do um, if it's them against. The U.S. Um, and often, what happens is other wealthy countries, like the European countries, um, Australia, Canada, Japan, will just kind of stay quiet um, and let the U.S. be the bad guy, and, and and they're quite happy to to just you know hide behind the U.S. Um, so, uh, so that's the dynamic we have in this case as well. I mean, I'd like to. I think it would be good to explicate as well what this kind of like geopolitical bullying means, because this is mm-hmm. something that we hear a lot around um, negotiations at international conferences. Um, but just to sort of clarify right now, so there were these thirteen key points of divergence between developing nations and developed nations at the fourth extra or this extra meeting, the fourth meeting. None had been resolved. They called this fifth meeting. And it was the developing nations who had to concede the points in order to move forward with a yep. framework to develop at COP28 in Dubai. And that was due to the US's quote unquote arm twisting and bullying. Um, so let, it would also be good to know what these other points were. So now sure. we know that um, the money can come from anywhere. There's no um, impe- impelling taking place upon Global North countries to pay in, which is what the, the root of loss and damages is. Um, so yes, could you tell us more of what the Global South conceded, the majority world conceded? Um, and sure. also then let's talk about what this bullying really does mean in practice. Sure. sure. Um, so one of the major fights that, that we were having was whether the loss and damage fund was going to be an independent, um, you know, a new independent entity uh, that would be democratically governed um, like the Green Climate Fund. So when we won the Green Climate Fund, it was established as, as an independent fund with its own board, its own staff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the U.S. and developed countries were really pushing for the fund to be housed under the World Bank. Um, the reason that we, as civil society and developing countries, were extremely skeptical of this was because the World Bank is a donor-driven institution um, it, it has a shareholder governance model. So the more you contribute to the World Bank, uh, the more of a vote, the more voting power you have. And the U.S. has the largest single vote share in the World Bank. Um, we want this fund to be ideally governed by the recipients, right? I mean, we have decades of experience in development and climate finance showing that the more you devolve decision making, um, you know, closer to the people who actually need the money the better and more sustainable the results. 
Um, and there's a, you know, a donor driven model of development and climate finance that just hasn't been proven to be effective, um, because it's responding to the whims of, of people in Washington, DC, rather than to the needs of people on the ground. Um, so there's a governance issue with the world bank. Uh, there's the fact that the world bank has very stringent rules uh, about how it can, um, distribute money. It has to essentially work through intermediaries. So you can't, the way the bank operates now, it wouldn't be able to give money through a loss and damage fund directly to a government of a, of a country where there's a disaster happening. Oh, that's it would have to give it through another multilateral development bank, say the African Development Bank, right? Or through a UN agency like the UN Development Program, say. But adding that layer of, of intermediary adds another layer of fees. It adds another layer of, you know, consultants that are going to be paid that are you know, they're coming in from the outside, sort of undermining the the self-governance and self-determination of the recipient. Um, you know, they're going to hire and pay people that are um, not going to, you know, build lasting capacity in the recipient country, right? There's all kinds of problems with having an, an intermediary rather than just directly giving money to the country. Um, so there are all kinds of problems um, along those lines. You know, there's the fact that the World Bank is is a lending institution, right? It's it was created to give loans, um, and this is a fund that should be about climate justice, which means it should be giving grants. It shouldn't be putting countries further in debt to recover from disasters that that you know weren't of their own making. Um, so, lots of reasons the World Bank was not the right institution to to house a loss and damage fund. But there was a massive amount of arm twisting and pressure from from rich countries, and and ultimately what we got was the World Bank will house the fund on an interim basis of four years. That was the compromise. Um, so on the face of it, that's a compromise, right? We have the option of getting this fund out of the World Bank if it's not working out in four years. In reality, when you create a massive international bureaucracy, it's very hard to kill it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think the the inertia that we're going to be facing if we actually do try to move the fund out of the World Bank four years from now is is going to be really hard to overcome. Uh, so so in in reality, I think this is pretty much a concession that that the fund is is going to live in the World Bank uh, uh, for the duration. Um, there were other fights around again, like you know, is is this fund going to be you know entirely grant based? Can it give loans? Um, uh, there are fights around how the money is going to be allocated, um, who is eligible to access the money. The developed countries really wanted to limit eligibility only to the most vulnerable countries, uh, without really defining what that means. Um, and developing countries wanted it to be open to, to all developing countries. Um, you know, because under certain vulnerability definitions, countries like, again, Pakistan, which is not a, you know, not a least developed country, not a small state, right? Pakistan might not qualify. Many Latin American countries might not qualify because they're seen as middle income, slightly more advanced economies. Um, but there are extremely devastating climate impacts in all these countries um, uh, that are happening to communities that simply don't have the resources to cope, uh, and nor do the governments, despite them being, you know, say, middle-income developing countries. So that was a big fight. Um, 
I would say we actually won on that one. Um, uh, on eligibility, all developing countries are eligible, but there's going to be a process to determine prioritization. That's been kicked until next year. So we're sort of avoiding the hard fight, right? Um, but it'll, it'll come up again um, next year uh, and, you know, before the fund can actually distribute any money. You know, maybe I, I've talked a lot in, in vague terms about bullying and, and arm twisting. Let's, and, let's yeah. yeah. I think now's a good moment to talk about what this actually means, bullying and arm twisting at these, these conferences. So there's part of it that, that is very visible and, and quite explicit uh, at these meetings, which is basically, if you don't give us the fund we want, we're not going to give money to it, right? Mm. That, that is the most obvious form of arm twisting that, that developed countries use in these negotiations, saying... You know, the U.S. again does this all the time. If if you don't design, if, if we don't put this fund in the World Bank, we're not going to be able to convince Congress to give money to it, right? Um, which, by the way, the U.S. can, you know, the administration has never been able to convince Congress get, to give money to hardly anything. Uh, and so, if we use that as a guide, um, you know, we might as well just give up. Uh, but you know, that's the fundamental thing: is 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 give us what we want, or you're not getting money, right? Um, which, you know, from a kind of real politic perspective makes a lot of sense. If you're approaching these negotiations from a climate justice perspective, it's pretty inexcusable, right? Mm. Um, you know, this is, this should not be country, you know, th this should not be money that the developed countries see as their money to do with as we, as they see fit. This is money that they should be paying as a, as a climate debt, right? Mm -hmm. Or as reparations. Um, there are, you know, other ways of arm twisting and bullying in the context of the climate negotiations that involve sort of trading things off, um, uh, you know, trading one thing for another thing, right? Saying, we can't accept this, uh, but maybe we'll make an, this other concession in a different part of the negotiations, right? So uh, we can't accept language saying that developed countries should give money here. Uh, here in the governing instrument of the loss and damage fund, but we'll give you this footnote maybe in the decision saying that, you know, whatever, like there's, there's a the trading off that happens there and, and oftentimes, you know, what gets traded is wildly unequal, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the fact of the matter is that the developed countries just need this a lot less than the developing countries do. And everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows that, that this fund is something that could make a huge difference for lives and livelihoods in developing countries. Uh, whereas establishing the fund, um, you know, doesn't directly benefit people in developed countries as much, right? You know, I think we have to zoom out. We have to take a broader view and saying that without genuine international solidarity and cooperation, we're not gonna solve the climate, climate crisis. And that's going to screw over everyone on the planet, including people living in rich countries. Um, but for negotiators who are, you know, um, they're in the business of politics, right? Uh, in some way or another, their calculation is, you know, you know, is is this going to support people in my country in the short term, mm -hmm. right? That's tr that's very much the case. You know, the answer is yes, right, for developing countries. And the answer is no for developed countries. 
And so everybody knows in these negotiations that the developing countries really need this. And that puts them at a disadvantage uh, uh, when it comes to, to the actual business of negotiations. So some people may, might say that's not really bullying, that's not really arm twisting, but the fact is there's a massive power differential and the developed countries take full advantage of it. And I think it's always important as well to note why that power differential exists in the first place, because Absolutely. these reparations, which I think is a good word for loss and damages, um, are essentially the an admittance of uh, colonialism and imperialism mm -hmm. as well. The fact that a lot of resources were taken from the majority world, which were then used to fuel the Industrial Re Revolution, which is sort of exactly. the cause of all of these uh, emissions, which is now causing warming, even though the climate crisis is one part of the crises that we face uh, today, including the biodiversity crisis, for example. Um, and Absolutely. so the admittance of that would also then suggest a willingness to move forward into a different world order, right? One which isn't based on imperialism or mm -hmm. military uh, or neocolonialism or any of that. But until we see that, there seems to be a real lack of willingness from the, the global north to, to essentially give up what it sees as its inequitable distribution of power, as you say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah and be willing to face a more equal world, which I imagine is quite scary if um, you're the reason why it's not equal in the first place. Yeah, you know, this again, this is especially true of the United States. Mm -hmm. The US negotiators are in these negotiations um, to preserve US power and hegemony, right? And that may not be true for individual negotiators who genuinely care about the climate crisis, but but when it comes to the actual U.S. negotiating positions, they are all about maintaining U.S. power. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's true of, of other developed country um, positions as well. There, there's not a negotiation that happens truly in the spirit of global solidarity mm -hmm. and of thinking about, OK, what is it that we need to do as a global community together to actually resolve the climate crisis? Right. The different countries, particularly, you know, the developed countries are, are really in it. Um, you know, to give lip service to that and to figure out how we can make some progress while still maintaining the status quo, right? And a denial of history is is a huge part of that, right? Let's, yeah, let's not talk about the fact that that since 1850, um, it, it, it's been the developed countries that, that have driven the problem. Let's talk about China, right? Yeah. Um, let's point the finger at China, which is a major emitter today, right? Um, but China is being used as a distraction away yeah. from that that weight of of history um, that the developed countries are strategically uh, always avoiding. I think another really important thing to note is um, the extent to which now uh, COP is being revealed kind of as this sort of greenwashing mechanism in order to pay lip service because of the fact that whilst civil societies fight and developing nations fight. And occasionally a country from the global north will also throw their hat in the ring. Um, I think it was uh, Scotland, Finland and New Zealand who all said uh, at COP27 mm -hmm. that they would pay towards um, loss and damages or COP26 even. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the fact that there are these uh, committees that take place where negotiations can be watered down, the fact as well that these are pledges, that there is nothing mm -hmm. compelling them in international law to meet mm -hmm. their requirements. I mean, this, um, the Green Climate Fund, in which the Global North is meant to pay in a hundred billion a year for over a decade. I mean, how much has been paid into that in total? It's less than even 20 one billion. 20, 20 billion. billion. 
right over the over 10 years almost over 10 almost, years. Uh, almost 10 years yeah. that is a fifth of what is meant yeah. to be paid in every year by the global north and nothing is compelling them in order to do so so i suppose please do you have something to say on that well i was just going to say it, it, it is uh, again the united states that has watered down the regime we started off with a regime that that um that was legally binding uh, there wasn't an enforcement mechanism, right? This has always been a weakness of, of any multilateral environmental treaty. But in the original UN convention, uh, developed countries had legal obligations to reduce emissions and provide finance. Uh, and the U.S. rejected that. They, they said, we, you know, the, the U.S. didn't join the first um, treaty that was created under the UN framework, which was the Kyoto Protocol. Because they said, we're not going to be bound to rules like this if China isn't also, right? This was 30 years ago. They were already um, saying this. Um, and so the U.S. is the reason that, you know, they said, if you want us to join an agreement, it has to be voluntary. And that's ultimately how we got to the Paris Agreement, which is 100% voluntary, no legal obligations. But there, again, there's a history there. There's a reason that that, uh, that, that came to be. And, and, it, and it's uh, a lot of it is about pressure from, from the U.S., you know, I, I feel like where you're going with this is what is the what is the point of, uh, yeah, of a process like this, this, right? <laughs> if it's, if it's How not do we binding, save COP? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and and you know what I would say is that the UN negotiations are the only place where a country like Vanuatu uh, or Rwanda or even Pakistan, right? can come in and at least formally have an equal say compared to the United States, right? It, the, the UN climate negotiations are a formally democratic process um, where every country has a voice. Now, in reality, there's power, right? In reality, there's all the arm twisting that we've already talked about. Um, and there's more of it that happens behind the scenes that I, that I, you know, that I did talk about, you know, diplomatic threats and, and, and so on. Um, but formally, this is a space where, where every country has a voice, right? And every country can say, this is why this is so important to me and this is what I need, right? Um, and there are things to be won. Um, the Green Climate Fund, $20 billion is a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed. That also makes it one of the biggest multilateral funds that we have in the world, right? Um, uh, the loss and damage fund, you know, there are hopes that, that it, would, it would reach and exceed that scale. Those are things that would not exist without this process, right? And they're not in, and they're not based on principles of justice. But there's no other recourse for developing countries to get what they need, right? Uh, if they're not, a, if they don't have a special relationship, like a bilateral relationship, you know, with the United States or with another um, wealthy country where they can get bilateral assistance, this is literally the only process they have for this kind of recourse. Um, and so it's easy, I think, for us to say this this process isn't delivering anything. It's failed. It's just failed for the last 30 years. Emissions have gone up, right, since the, the beginning of the climate convention. Money's not flowing. You know, I think it's easy for us to say all those things. Um, it's also true that it's, it's literally the only lifeline that many countries have. Mm, well said, Brandon. Thank you. What should we be looking for um, at COP28? What are we hoping will happen with this fund? What do you expect to be on the table? So it, ideally, it would actually be a little bit anticlimactic. 
uh, in that the the transitional committee has has designed uh, has has met its met its mandate. It delivered a design for the fund as watered down and as weak as it is, uh, and the COP should approve it. Uh, and then we'll get a fund, and it'll be in the World Bank. It won't have any guarantees that developed countries will pay in, um, but it gives us you know ground to continue the fight, right? Um, so it will be possible to kind of make changes on top of that and continue lobbying. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So so a, a board will be established that governs the fund, uh, and we'll keep lobbying at the board, right? The World Bank has to meet a certain set of conditions. Um, in order to host the fund, we're going to follow that really closely and make sure the World Bank actually meets those conditions. They're pretty good conditions, right? That they're the, the developing countries did win some pretty good um, language in here, saying the World Bank has to figure out a way to give money directly to developing countries and circumvent this issue of intermediaries that I talked about. Mm. If they can't do that, we're moving the fund somewhere else. Mm. I'm actually not sure they can do that. The World Bank bureaucracy is a giant beast. Mm. Uh, and they have made some, they agreed to some pretty strong conditions that are gonna require major policy change within the bank. So we're gonna be following that really closely. And if we have the opportunity to say, no, you're, this isn't good enough, then we're gonna push for the funds to be in, an independent fund, right? Um, and sorry, so, who is appointed as well to the board? It'll be similar to the transitional committee. Right. So they're going to appoint country, like regional representat re representatives. Um, so it's a slight majority of de developing country representatives and they're, they'll be assigned by region. Um, and the regions themselves have to decide who represents them. Okay. Um, and again, it's going to operate by consensus, right? And so everybody's got, you know, got to agree. So you could have a bad actor um, that, that holds up progress. Um, which is all the more reason that we need, you know, <laughs> people there advocating and um, and communicating to the public what's happening so we can put pressure um, on those bad actors. So that, you know, that fight's going to continue post-COP if it gets approved. There's a chance that some countries are so unhappy with what happened at the transitional committee that they say, no, we don't accept this. We don't think the COP should adopt this as, a, as the framework for the fund. And so we want to reopen that text that was agreed and renegotiate it. So that could happen. Then, of course, if that happens, then we'll be we'll be lobbying at COP uh, to try to get this thing um, improved. Right. Um, the risk there is that it, you know, it might not get better. It could get worse. Right. right. Um, and, and and because the uh, political pressure and the arm twisting and all that stuff I was talking about is actually is much more intense at cops than it is at a small committee meeting. Um, you know, I think a lot of folks think it it's, it would be more likely to get worse than better if it were reopened. Mm. Um, but regardless, if it gets reopened, we'll be there fighting, right? Um, so I, I think those are the two possible possibilities is either it just, it sort of sails through and gets rubber stamped by cop. Fine, we'll fight, we'll, we'll you know, We'll be we'll be fighting our fights next year, or it gets reopened at COP, and and we're fighting um, we're fighting those fights, uh, you know, in a month. All right, brilliant, Brandon. Thank you so much, and thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much for having me. So this was. I thought this was a really, really cool conversation. Um, I'm not sure "cool" is the right word. I thought it was a really interesting conversation because. Mm -hmm. um, 
the loss and damage fund in spirit when it was created was was sort of created as as both of you explained sort of like climate reparations um and that is not what it resembles anymore now it now it's more like a uh i forget how brandon phrased it uh like an international like donation fund this is a international cooperation fund right <laughs> and taking away the the component where wealthy industrialized nations are compelled to contribute to it seems to undermine it uh, undermine its purpose and i thought that was i mean that was a really good examination of that yeah i think the whole process of it is fascinating even that you can win the right to design a thing at cop which is a huge achievement and then over the next year when a committee is getting together to meet to discuss it it can be completely watered down until it no longer resembles at all what it was originally designed for and yet it still falls under that category right um and i think that this is something we all need to understand like just because vocally <laughs> you get um an okay from the international community it doesn't mean that they're going to come through um at the end and actually stick to what everybody's understanding mm -hmm. of the the mechanism it's like loss and damages and yeah it's really sad to be honest i mean i wonder if ensuring that developing nations are not compelled that it is just another fund like the um the green climate fund I wonder if a part of that is to try and get, you know, private businesses maybe to give money to try and like offset responsibility away from states. Mm. Um, and as Brandon said, the major part of it is like the global north does not want to get sued for their accountability in causing the the crisis. Mm. And I mean, I interviewed him for Mongo Bay for an article um, just over a year ago ahead of um, last year's COP. And that was like the main thrust of the piece as well. That was the, that's always been the problem with the United States is they think if we agree to something that looks like reparations, that means that we're admitting fault. And that means that we could be dragged through the courts internationally. It's, there's a theme emerging here that I'm noticing that isn't just, it's obviously not just relegated to the loss and damage fund. It, it's, it's with many, many global funds for things like forest protection. Um, I just got done done examining like all the different forest protection funds in the Congo Basin. And, you know, there's a lot of broken promises there. There's a lot of unfulfilled, you know, donate like pledges that that happen. And it, you know, this one runs the risk of falling into that same fate. And I just wonder if I, I wonder if, you know, the international community knows that the rest of the world understands how this usually goes and how these funds usually play out um, and whether or not they're taking that into account when doing these negotiations. That's a, that's a question I have. Um, mm. And I'm not sure it, it's, it's kind of one that's, you know, hard to get into obviously, but it's, it's a, it's a big question I have for, for cop in general. Do you mean like, you wonder if the international community is aware that they can break promises and that these things are typically deconstructed beyond a useful purpose like when they're actually designed. Like, are they aware that we're aware that like, are they aware that the, the, pu the public in general... <laughs> do they know that we know? Does the, do they know that we know? Like, hey, if that's not legally binding, we know it's not legally binding. 
uh, and we're not, yeah. you know, doesn't it doesn't real mm. doesn't really give, you know, yeah. people are that not impressed. Such, it's such a good question, and it could take us down the rabbit hole of the media's role in essentially like maintaining certain narratives, the use of the use of language right. around selling particular stories. Um, the fact that, I mean, it's, it's true. Like, why are we accepting pledges at this stage? There mm-hmm. should be a call to reform COP when all we're seeing that pledges are broken time and time and time and time again. And yet it's sort of dictated as if this is like the highest form of international cooperation that mm-hmm. can exist. When we know that that's not true. There, there are international treaties, there are international, there are like internationally binding laws around certain things. Um, in, environmental protections from, uh, you know, from the past in which international community got together um, and wrote into law what they can and cannot do, like with uh, chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs and mm-hmm. the ozone layer. Um, and yet that's not what we expect from, from the COP process. And as you say, like, do they know that we know? Because we do know. But then also, what changes despite us knowing? Yeah. And despite them knowing we know, um, <laughs> it is like perhaps, perhaps, you know, speculation, of course, perhaps they're they're taking that into consideration and just doing the same old action um, anyway, um, which one could argue they are. Uh, so it's it's a. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's a question worth asking. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that you pointed out in this conversation with Brandon is that, you know, the World Bank is is not the the uh, the prime choice for a uh, a loss and damage fund to be housed from the from the perspective of of uh, developing and low and middle income countries. Um, and again, that's another theme that is sort of emerging here is that is that you know. With like like with the the forest the forest funds that have been pledged to the Congo Basin, a lot of those get wedged into this into like a large NGO or an intermediary rather than going to state governments themselves to manage. Um, and there's a variety of excuses that's usually used for this, um, or justifications rather, um, that's used for this. But at the end of the day, you know, countries are asking, you know. Indigenous communities are asking to be in the driver's seat of how those funds get used. And, um, but I thought it was quite prescient that Brandon pointed out the power dynamic here basically, you know, puts, puts low and middle income countries at, at the disadvantage and having really no final say in how that is. It's, 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 uh, it's uh, the wealthy developed industrialized nations that get to choose how that happens. Um, and I found that to be interesting the housing this in the world bank i think really reveals the double think that goes on with these cop processes and how they are mostly lip service um to pretending as if we're doing something about the problem Mm -hmm. um because a really easy way and fast way that you could free up funding for developing nations to mitigate against the climate crisis, not adapt to mitigate, would be to cancel their debt, call for debt cancellation, get them out of these really terrible loans that essentially keep them in some kind of like serfdom mm-hmm. that are normally done out of the World Bank, right? Um, 
And as Brandon pointed out, the people who donate the most to the World Bank have the most control. So the United States, the Global North, um, essentially are dictating um, the like global financial aid system. And it's not aid, is it, if it's a loan around the world? So the fact that they won't cancel debt because it is an excellent mode of um, keeping a hands in a hand in the politics of a nation without actually being a politician there, mm-hmm. um, but are housing a fund there in order to try and raise money, which they are not compelled to um, to pay into. I think it just yeah, it reveals the double thing of the of the system at play. Um, and the fact that this fund seems like just another sort of greenwashing mechanism or a, a cooperation washing mechanism um, that fundamentally will not help the developing nations that need the most help. Because as you say, they're in such a weak position, being tied up in loans, dependent on aid, having um, policies that impact their own national policies, like, for example, in Europe, the common agricultural policy, which impacts um the pos- potential like profits or yield from farming that the continent of Africa could have, but they don't because of this policy in Europe. Um, they are fundamentally uh, in a disadvantaged position. And I mean, the fact that there was this extra meeting at the end, this fifth one, and it was the majority world that conceded everything mm-hmm. in order to get uh, a deal on the table. And, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yet, as Brandon mentioned, the the best case scenario it, from his perspective that we could hope for, that that he hopes for at COP is that it is accepted. It is adopted and perhaps yeah. and perhaps then um, improved upon, you know, in subsequent years, um, which I also found to be interesting. I, I was, uh, you know, the other scenario he pointed out is that it could be, you know, there could be protest about it and it could be changed. But he said that very likely it could it could become even worse um, or even more watered down than it is now. So I thought that was really interesting that that was like the prospect on the table now. So I'll be curious to see what happens in the first week of December. Yeah, I was really surprised by that as well. And I mean, talk about being stuck between a rock and a hard place mm-hmm. as a developing nation on the international stage dealing with the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis and the earth system crisis and the bloody everything crisis. Sorry, I shouldn't swear. <laughs> I, don't think, Sorry, I, don't, I don't think bloody counts as a swear word anymore. Uh, I think we're fully, out of, we're fully out of the era of that counting as a curse word. Okay, okay, good. It's from a, a different time period, I guess. Right. Um, but I think... The it reveals the political atmosphere, I would say, in that once again, the most vulnerable people in the world are having to choose between lesser evils rather than getting to choose what is best for them. I was really surprised that um, the, 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 the strategy that Brandon suggested mm-hmm. um, initially Although when he explained it, I was like, yeah, I guess that tracks. And for civil society as well, I mean, they, they need to get something on the table. Um, they want to help. I wonder if activists will have a slightly different approach. Um, independent campaigners or young campaigners. And also, yeah, I would be really interested to know like, the difference between these people at committees 
who are making decisions versus communities on the ground and what they think is would they like to have a deal even if it is watered down almost beyond recognition or would they rather go back to to step one and take the risk yeah i would i would be curious to hear that too Hmm. well rachel um well, listen, I think it, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge this is your first uh, your first outing as co-host here on the Manga Bay Newscast. Um, I'm <laughs> really excited to have you on board. Welcome. Uh, any thoughts to share? Concerns, worries, <laughs> or like, how do you feel? I mean, not concerned about this. I'm so happy to be here with you, Mike. Thank you so much. It's a real joy. We've kind of like collaborated on a couple of different things over yeah. the years so I was really thrilled when when you called me up all those months ago and suggested this so yes I'm really excited to be here and also I would just like to shout out Manga Bay like I know people listening to this already must you know by definition already know Manga Bay but um, Manga Bay is the website that I go to when I want to understand politically what's happening in the world because like the precision of the reporters and using the environmental lens to like get a big picture view um, of conflict or of policy change or whatever. I just think it's phenomenal. So I'm really, really like honored to be part of the team and collaborating with you on this podcast. So no concerns about this, just like many concerns about the wider world. (laughs) As usual. Yeah, that is, that's one way to put it. Well, Rachel, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. Thanks for joining me. And uh, I look forward to future conversations. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much, Mike. Make sure you visit mongabay.com to learn more about COP28 and any related coverage from Mongabay. As always, if you're enjoying the Mongabay newscast or any of our podcast content like our sister series, Mongabay Explorers, and you want to help us out, We encourage you to spread the word about the work we're doing by telling a friend. Word of mouth is indeed the best way to help expand our reach. But as always, you can also support us by becoming a monthly sponsor via our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Mongabay. Mongabay is a nonprofit news outlet. Even just a dollar per month makes a difference and helps us offset the production costs and hosting fees. So if you're a fan of our audio reports from Nature's Frontline, head to patreon.com forward slash Mongabay to learn more and support the Mongabay newscast and all of our podcast content. You and your friends can join the listeners who have downloaded the Mongabay newscast well over half a million times by subscribing to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, or you can download our app for Apple and Android devices. Just search either App Store for the Mongabay newscast app to gain fingertip access to new shows and all of our previous episodes. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read our news and inspiration from Nature's Frontline at mongabay.com, or you can follow us on social media. Find Mongabay via our accounts on LinkedIn at Mongabay News, and on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, Mastodon, Facebook, and TikTok, where our handle is at Mongabay, or on YouTube at Mongabay TV. Thank you, as always, for listening. <laughs>